0: Are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario? For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we we bow before you because no one can stand before you. We come to you in the name of your son Jesus Christ who's the only means by which we can stand in your presence means by which we can come into your presence is because he came from your presence to come and be present with us to lay down his life so that we could be welcomed in so that we could be brought into your family Lord as not as creatures trembling in fear but as sons and daughters who love you and know you and relate to you and God I pray that you would Send your spirit, Lord, to move in a powerful way. That you would take the spirit that dwells inside of all of us, the spirit that inspired these words from 1 Samuel, God, and that you would speak to us so powerfully and so clearly. I pray for strength and weakness, Lord, right now. I pray for speaking with faith. I pray for hearing with faith. I pray that your words would go beyond our ears, even beyond our minds, to touch our very hearts, transform our entire lives, Lord. Help us, we pray. We need you, Lord. We are counting on you. We long to hear from you, God. So speak, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Who can stand before the Lord? That's the question that that last song we just sang asked. That's the question that the passage we're going to study today will ask. Who can stand before the Lord? Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can put one in your hands as they're coming up and down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand or holler at them. We live in a world that has that question all backwards. It's not who can stand before the Lord, but whether or not the Lord should stand before us. We live in a world that's treated God like he's some sort of concept or idea that can be either received or rejected. And we're living in a world where people are saying, we don't want the Lord to stand before us. And we can get along just fine without him. We're more enlightened now. We're more wise now. We're more advanced now. We've evolved beyond our need for God. And that God no longer needs to stand in our presence. and We certainly don't need to stand before him. And as our culture is shifting in that direction, there are still some people who, who want to please God, who want to stand before God. And even though they believe in God, their understanding of Him is all backwards as well. Their answer to the question, of who can stand before the Lord, would be, well, the person who is strong enough to sort of stand on their own two feet, religiously speaking. Someone who follows all of the rules and goes through all of the rituals, and they think they are sorely mistaken, just as mistaken as those who are pushing God to the periphery. There are many religious people who are trying to stand before the Lord with their good deeds or their religious activities. The answer to the question, who can stand before the Lord, the answer is quite simple, no one can. And today from 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, we're going to to see uh, the people of God and some people who are outside of the people of God wrestle with this idea of who can indeed stand before the Lord. We're going to see three reasons why no one can stand before him. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel. We've had a a baptism and a prayer service and a guest speaker. And so let me just bring us back up to speed what has happened so far. In chapter 1, Samuel, uh, the the one after whom this this book is named, he was born miraculously in in answer to Hannah's prayer who had years of, of infertility. And then Hannah offered Samuel back to the Lord. She placed her young little boy into the guardianship of the priest Eli. And so young Samuel had this, this de facto stepfather, Eli, and then these wicked older stepbrothers, Hophni and Phinehas. And we're given a window into what religious life. We're given a, a window into how the clergy were living and the kind of immoral and wicked people that they were. And then the people of Israel find themselves in a a military battle against the Philistines. And on the first day of the Battle of Ebenezer, they lose terribly. And then in an act of superstitious presumption, they think that if they bring the Ark of God with them to the battle, that that will somehow guarantee victory. And the the result was disastrous. The, The... The priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who brought the ark, they they end up getting killed in battle. And the ark itself gets captured by the enemy army. And messengers return and uh, the word gets back to Eli. As soon as Eli finds out, he falls over and dies And then word is brought at the end of chapter 4, before we get into chapter 5, just look at the very end of chapter 4, Eli's daughter-in-law, who was pregnant, the the stress, no doubt, of learning that her her husband and brother-in-law and father-in-law have all been killed and that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines, she goes into labor and and she dies in labor. This woman who is a widow is about to give birth to a baby who will be an orphan. And in her last words, she names her child at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21. It says, She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Uh, Ichabod is is, the name is a question. The question is, Where is the glory? In the word Ichabod is the word Kabod or Kabod. That's the word glory. And in order to understand this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 5, 6, and 7, you're going to have to understand this concept of glory. The glory of God, the the word glory, can be equated with with the word for heaviness or weight. You see, Eli's daughter-in-law, in in that moment, when she saw that the ark had been captured, that the glory of God, the weight of God, the very foundation of their society, the rock-solid reality of who God is and what he has promised... That that foundation had been shaken. And now the question is, Ichabod, where is the kabod? Where is the glory? And then we find in chapter 5 that the Philistines now have the ark in their territory. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Let's take a look at the map here just so we can understand some, some terms of reference. So Shiloh, that's where Samuel was living and grew up and Hophni and Phinehas and Eli were. They brought the ark to the battle of Ebenezer where they lost. It was right on the border between Philistia and Israel. Now the Philistines have captured it and brought it down to the coastal city of Ashdod. Now, a couple of things about Philistia. The Philistines, they were actually Greeks. They came from the Aegean Sea. They sailed across the Mediterranean and settled in that area there. Now, that dotted line that divides um, Philistia from Israel and the Mediterranean Sea, that that dotted line, that whole territory, that's part of the promised land. That's land that God had promised to Israel. Abraham that God had allocated to his people through Moses and Joshua, that was the promised land. But the Philistines were living there. And they brought the ark of God to Ashdod, to the place of Dagon, the the god of the Philistines. He was a grain god. And some of us are familiar with the story of Samson, where Samson pushed over the pillars of a temple in order to destroy the temple and the people that were in it sort of as his last act, the final victory. That was a temple to Dagon among uh, the Philistines. And so he's brought into this temple and then look what happens in verse 3. It says, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so it's almost comical. You know, Dagon's fallen and he can't get up. Because here's the truth of the matter, guys. No one can stand before the Lord's glory. If you're taking notes today, jot that down. No one can stand before the Lord's glory. The weight of who God is, as it's symbolically represented in the Ark of the Covenant. God is not just some other God. Okay, the Philistines were... were Similar to the pluralists today, people who think, well, you can believe whatever you believe and you believe that God or I believe part, part of this religion, part of that religion, that it's all somehow all the same, it all leads to the same place. They thought they could just bring you know, Israel's God and, and put him in the temple beside their own God. Well, listen, God won't stand beside anyone and God will not give his glory to another and so Dagon is found the next morning face down before the Ark of the Covenant. At the end of verse 3, it's, it's sad. It says, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. They had to pick up their god and put him back in place. Verse 4, it says, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So here you have a dismembered and decapitated deity. Now, some god, you know. You see, he, Dagon did not have the weight. He, he wasn't able to balance himself, to keep himself secure in the presence of the almighty God before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's, it's easy for us, living in the 21st century in North America, to look at other cultures or to look at other periods in time and say, why did they ever believe in some statue? I mean, they had to pick it up and put it back in place. Well, listen, you, you need to understand that that yeah, some things have changed about society and there are some differences between cultures. But really, human beings, were no different from one another. You see, Dagon was a grain god. And no one really worshipped Dagon because they loved Dagon. They worshipped Dagon because they wanted grain. You see, you might not bow before a grain god. But just like the Philistines, inside of all of us, there is a greed god. Dagon's long gone, no one worships him anymore, but the greed god is alive and well. And you might not bow before a statue because of your greed, but you might spend too much time at work and neglect other things. You might lust after and pursue certain possessions or certain status symbols because the greed god is still alive and well. And you see... Those gods don't have the weight. Just like those old gods, those statues, don't have the weight compared to God's glory. We ourselves don't have, don't, the idols that we worship don't have the weight. We're seeking after something that is shallow and that is hollow. Psalm 115 says that those who make them become like them this is this brilliant psalm or this brilliant part of a psalm that talks about these idols of silver and gold but the very last line psalm 115 verse 8 those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. When you go after something and an idol that doesn't have the weight of the glory of God. When you go after wealth or vanity or popularity or success, those things are hollow, those things are shallow, those things are empty. The people that go after those things become like those things. I've experienced in my own life becoming myself going after sh- something shallow and myself becoming shallow in the process. And so that's what's happening here. The the idols of this world cannot stand in the presence of God's glory. Take a look at verse 6. It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy. Remember the word for heavy and the word for glory. It's basically the same word. The hand of the Lord was glory on the people of Israel. The hand of the Lord was too heavy. Sorry, not on the people of Israel, the people of the Philistines. Against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Verse 8, so they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought down to Gath. So it's not going to work in Ashdod. It's not working out here. Let's send them to Gath. Let's take a look at the map here. Let's send them down to uh, Gath. I mean, Gath, I mean, that's Goliath's hometown, I mean, there's giants living down there. They're strong warriors. I mean, surely they're going to be able to handle having the presence of God. We've got these tumors. Our gods are falling apart. And so let's just send it down to Gath. Well, the same thing happens in Gath. And then so you look at verse 10. It says So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so the, the ark is just going on this tour of, of, of the Philistines and visiting city after city. And the same things keep happening. You see, here's the amazing thing about the glory of God. God is so glorious. God is so majestic. God is so powerful that even when it seems like he's losing, he's always winning. You see, it seemed, it seemed like a crushing defeat. The Ark of the Covenant is in the hands of the Philistines. But God's using what seems like a defeat to really be a victory. And listen, this is the way our God works. It seems like he's losing, but He's winning. I mean, think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan thought he had won. The creator is being crucified by the creatures. You would think he's, being, he's dead. He's being laid in a tomb. It seems like defeat, but the defeat was actually the key to the victory. This is the way our God works. This is his glorious hand. He's so glorious, so powerful. So eventually, they, they don't know what to do. They they try taking it to different places. They finally come to the conclusion that the Ark needs to be brought back to Israel. So look with me at chapter 6, verse 4. They gather all of their priests and their necromancers, their prophets, all of their religious leaders to give them some advice. We have this this Ark of the Covenant, and, and we need to get rid of it. But we don't want to make things worse in the process. So the consultants are asked in verse verse 4 they ask the question what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him they answered five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines for some plague that was on for the same plague that was on all of you and on your lords so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice and ravage the land and give notice this give glory to the God of Israel. It's a victory. They are, these, these people are going to give glory. They're going to recognize that God is the true God. That he's the one who has the weight. That no one, not even their gods, not even their strong warriors, not, no one can stand before him. He is going to get the glory. He is going to get the weight. Then it says, perhaps he will lighten. His hand from off of you and your gods and your land. So the plan is they're going to make these little, these little gold, precious moments figurines of their tumors, which is just gross, and then mice, which is just weird. Maybe the mice, maybe it was the plague, or so the mice were causing and spreading the tumors. But they were just doing the best they could with their own religious background. How do we please God? Well, maybe, maybe we'll pay him off. Maybe we'll bribe God. They truly don't know who God is. God owns all the gold. gold. You can't buy him, he doesn't need a gift. He's not like looking at this, oh, nice craftsmanship, oh, this is really nice. He doesn't need those kinds of things, but they're just doing the best that they can, making it up as they go along. But also, notice how they understand their history. Verse 6, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? I mean, the Exodus had happened like 400 years. Four centuries had gone by. But they knew their history. They knew that the glory of God was not something that they should mess around with. And so they come up with this plan. They're going to they're make these gold little statues. And they're going to send the Ark of the Covenant back. Now here's, the, here's the, uh, some more details. Look at verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And then look down at verse nine. So you you get all this set, you put the ark on this cart, you have the two calves, or the two cows, and send their calves home, and then it says, And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us, it happened to us by coincidence so they set up this experiment and they they try to sort of be scientifically faithful they they try to be a neutral they and 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 level the the playing field but the playing field was not level it was very slanted okay they took two cows who had never had a yoke before and there's not going to be anyone driving them or steering them in a particular direction so chances are they're just going to go around in circles or just stand still because they haven't been trained to to have a yoke furthermore notice they they choose milk cows milk cows who have just had calves and they send the calves home And then they expect the cows to go away from their calves. And and so the whole thing is slanted. Maybe they didn't want to let go of all of that gold. They were hoping that they would turn around, which is what cows would naturally do. And and notice the, the logic here. At the very end they say, well, we're just trying to see if this was really God or if this just happened by coincidence. Really, did they need any more evidence? To say that this wasn't a coincidence, everywhere the ark went, this plague of the tumors came along with them. Not to mention, for two days straight, Dagon is face down in his own temple. But this idea, well, you know what, maybe, maybe we'll set up this scientific experiment, but you know, chances are it's probably, it's probably just a coincidence. You see, this is the kind of world that we live in today. We live in a world that just refuses to give God glory. Refuses to give God credit when he's actually doing something. Have you ever heard of the Goldilocks principle? It's, it, the Goldilocks principle is, is a, it's a short, short form for sort of a, a larger concept that scientists talk about. And, but it's very easy. Someone, I studied history in university and I can get my, my mind wrapped around the Goldilocks principle. The idea is it describes the, the distance between the earth and the sun. The Goldilocks principle explains that if, if the earth were any closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. But if we were any further away from the sun, we'd all freeze. So it would be too hot if we were too close, too cold if we were too far. But we find ourselves in a situation that's just right. And that's why it's called the Goldilocks Principle. Because when Goldilocks, she tried some porridge that was too hot. She tried some porridge that was too cold. And then she found some porridge that was just right. But listen... People who don't believe in God or give God any credit still believe the Goldilocks principle. But here's the thing. Don't call it the Goldilocks principle because Goldilocks didn't walk into the three bears' house and say, oh, this house must be here by coincidence. No one built this house. This house came here as a result of this random coincidental process over millions and millions of years. And, and this porridge, how did this porridge get here? Well, listen, the house is there because someone built it and put it there. The porridge is there and the porridge is just right because someone made the porridge. Planet Earth is here and not here and here and not here because someone made it and because someone put it there and they made it just right. But then people in all of their wisdom, all of their learning just say, well, you know, it's, 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 it's just like the Philistines. It's, it must just be a coincidence. And so they do this experiment. Let's see what, what ends up Happening, verse 12 says, after they get the cows loaded up with the, with the cart, and after they put the calves away, it says the cows went straight in the direction along, along one highway, lowing as they went. So lowing, that's the sound cows make. Mm, that's cow language for, I want to feed my calves. Where are my children? And so they're lowing as they're going. They, they want to feed their, their calves But notice how they turned neither to the right nor to the left. It was as though they were experienced with having that yoke. And they went straight for Beth Shemesh. Let's get the geographical reference here. So they left Ekron and they went right into Israel territory on the border to Beth Shemesh. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. Loved ones, this was a case of bovine revelation. I'm sorry, I've been waiting all week to say that one. No one has laughed. I think it's really, really funny. But the story up until this point, it's been kind of funny. It's been like a comedy, right? you got gods falling down. You've got, you know, people working hard to make these tumors out of mice or, or these these gold statues out of tumors and mice. You've got this ridiculous experiment and all of it is just God showing no one can stand before my glory. No one can stand before my glory. It starts off like a comedy, but then it takes a real turn. It, it moves from a comedy to a tragedy. Because after the ark arrives at Beth Shemesh, look at chapter 6, verse 19. It says, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. See, they went from rejoicing when they first saw the ark to having the ark in their presence. And now they are mourning. And then they asked, the, they asked themselves the question. This is the core question of, of the passage that we're studying today. Verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. No one can stand before the Lord. Loved ones, no one can stand before His glory. That's point number one. Here's point number two no one can stand before His holiness. No one can stand before the Lord's holiness. It says that God struck down 70 of the people there because they looked on or looked in the ark. You see, God had made it very clear that the ark was to remain covered. This is the protocol for the Ark of the Covenant and how it was supposed to be transported and cared for in Numbers chapter 4. It says, This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. The different Levite clans were divided into groups and given different tasks and responsibilities. The Kohathites, or the sons of Kohath, were responsible for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a lot of detail in the book of Numbers about how this is supposed to be done. Before the Kohathites even get close to it, this is what was supposed to happen. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons, the priests, shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So the veil, the little tent that was around the Holy of Holies, that was to be taken down and laid on top of the the ark. Then it says, "Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin, and pre- and spread on top of that a cloth of blue. Three layers of covering were supposed to be over the ark at all times when it was supposed to be transport, transported. transport, and when it was set up. There were three layers within the temple, the three sections." And so there was always this separation, this division between people and the presence of God. The essence of the word holiness is separation. That God is holy, he is separate. The the passage goes on to say, Numbers 4, uh, 18 and 19, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die. The stakes were made very clear in the book of Numbers. If you handle the Ark of the Covenant wrong, you will die when they come near to the most holy things. And so the, the worst the Philistines ever faced were tumors. They, they at least had the good sense to put it in one of their uh, temples. But the, the, the people of Beth Shemesh, even though they were rejoicing, in their rejoicing they became irreverent. And they handled the Ark of the Covenant in some way that was dishonoring to him by looking at it. They they didn't respect and revere the separation between God and us. You see, we talk about God being a holy God. Holiness is sort of this catch-all attribute that that fits together all of the different attributes to God. When we talk about the holiness of God, we we, we talk about things like that he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's no one who knows everything, so he's holy. He's separate. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's no one like that. He's He's omnipotent. He has all the power. There's no one like that. Even the things that we have in common with God, he's still holy and separate. We know what it is to have a sense of right and wrong and justice. But there's a separation between our sense of right and wrong and God's sense of right and wrong. We know what it is to love and to care for someone else. But his love and care is so much more. There's a separation. He's a holy God. And we are supposed to live lives of holiness. We are supposed to revere that the Lord's prayer begins, hallowed be your name. May your name be treated as holy. And we are called to holiness. And this is is what the people of Beth Shemesh understood, but look at how they respond. The second half of verse 20, they ask another question. After they say, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They say, and to whom shall we go up? And to whom shall he go up away from us? They're just like the Philistines. They just want to move it on to the next city. And then look at verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. There's some missing details in that invitation, right? There's some fine print about 70 people being dead. Hey, it's good news. You know what? The Philistines brought the ark back and we just kind of wanted to share the wealth. We don't want to keep it all to ourselves. Why don't you come and pick it up? They weren't willing to to make changes in their own life in order to have the holiness of God dwell in their midst. They just said, you know what? Forget it. We're just going to pass him on to someone else. So the ark goes to Kiriachirim. It's there for 20 years. And then... In chapter 7 verse 3 Samuel shows up on the scene again and the people are starting to want to turn. They're wanting to return to the Lord. They see the fact that the ark came back as a, as a, as a sign to them that God was still with them and they wanted to respond. So. It says in chapter 7, verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And so Samuel here is calling them to repentance. He's calling them to return to the Lord to turn. They were going away from him and he is calling them to turn, to return to him. You see, loved ones, in light of the glory of God, in light of the holiness of God, repentance is so crucial. Don't be like the people of Beshemesh You say, well, he's, he's holy and so we, I, I just, he's, he's separate, he's other. No. God wants us to be close to him and the means by which we can be close to him is to repent. It's to repent. You see, 500 years ago this week, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a young monk, had a desire to see the church reformed. He started something called the reformation, the reformation, to bring a dead medieval church back to life. That's what to be reformed means. And he nailed on the the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, 95, he called them 95 theses, 95 theses, Points of debate. Things that he wanted to talk about with other scholars and other priests. This was the first thing. This was at the top of the list that started the Protestant Reformation. It says, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance." This is how we respond to the holiness of God. This is our only hope, is to turn and to repent. To recognize that he is holy and that we are not. That we have turned away from him and we are turning back towards him. And repentance is not just some sort of one-time thing that you do when you first become a Christian. No, it is something that we are called to do all through our lives. It's something that God has been calling us to do all through our lives. It has two parts. The first one, put away the false gods. Do you see that in verse three? Put away the false gods that are among you. All of our life is putting away the false gods. And this is, this is a message that we need to hear all of the time. The people of God needed to hear it all of the time. Look back at Genesis 35. Jacob told his family, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Genesis 35. Joshua said it in, 20, in Joshua 24. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. The people of God were being continually told, put away the foreign gods. Now we talked about how it's, we have foreign gods in our own world. We may not worship Dagon, but we have things that we worship instead of God that need to be put away. There are things in our lives, there are things that we brought in with us today to church that we need to make a plan that we're not walking out with them. There are certain relationships that are toxic and are unhealthy, a certain peer group, a certain group of friends that simp- you need to put them away. You, you need to stop being influenced by those people. Maybe it's, maybe it's a screen or a device or a television program, something that is causing you to repeatedly sin. You can't say, God, I'm sorry, but then turn it back on again. You, man shall not live by devices alone. Put it away if you need to. Give it away to someone else. Cut, put away the foreign God's. Beloved ones, it's, it's not as simple. That's not the only thing Samuel said. He says, put away the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth. So they had a name. Those, those were some of the gods. It's easy to name the things that are causing us problems. But then he says, direct your heart. You see, it was easy to get rid of Dagon, the god of, the god of grain. But what about the god of greed? Are we actually addressing the heart issues? What am I looking for that I'm trying to get out of this thing that only God... Can give to me? What shallow, empty, light thing am I going after? And how can I reset, reset my heart to be fixed on the heaviness, the weightiness of the glory of God? So, repentance is something external. There's some choices that need to be made, but it's something internal as well. And repentance is incomplete if you only have one. Both of those things need to be happening in our. Lives. No one can stand before the Lord's holiness, and our only hope, loved ones, is repentance. And so the people get together at Mizpah, and they're having this worship service. And then look at verse 7. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. I don't know if you've found this in your life. This has been true in my life. When I draw a line in the sand, that's when I find the enemy tries to cross the line. When I truly try to seek, my, to seek the Lord with all of my heart, that's when the attacks on my heart get even more intense. And so the people of Israel, they're trying, they're, they're trying to turn to the Lord. And then here comes the attack. And let's take a look, geographically speaking, about where Mizpah was. So it's, it's, it's here on the screen there, over by the Jordan River and the, the Dead Sea, just north of, of present-day uh, Jerusalem. You see, the skirmishes were, were happening around Ebenezer, near the borders. Look, the enemy now is going right for the heartland. This is an all-in military move, a strategic move by the Philistines. They are blitzkrieging their way right to the very core. And that's what our enemy is trying to do. Because when we're playing on his team, he doesn't really have a target on our back. We're not really a concern. But when we put away the foreign gods and when our heart is no longer going after the things of this world, but our heart is going after what it was made, remade to go after, after the Lord... Then the attack is going to come and it's going to go deep. And so this is a real crucial moment for the people of God. What are they going to do in this moment? They're afraid. Where are they going to turn? Well, they keep keep turning to the Lord. Verse 8 says, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Listen to the the dramatic unfolding in verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, as the lamb is being burned on the altar, as the smoke is wafting up into the sky, as all of this... Is happening, it says the Philistines drew near to attack. At the very moment of the sacrifice, the Philistines are moving in. And the people are they're 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 trying to trust the Lord. They're looking to this sacrifice. They're they're praying before Him. They're they're trying to seek the Lord. Well, how's it gonna happen? All all we're doing, they've got all of this army, and all we have is a is a, a lamb that's being sacrificed. So it says, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered a mighty sound. And he interceded on their behalf and that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. The Lord sent this incredible, this miraculous thunder that gave the people of Israel this strategic advantage. And they pursued the Philistines all the way back to their border and beyond. And God brought about a great victory. You see, loved ones, you need to understand this. And this may catch you a little bit off guard. It is true that no one can stand before the Lord's glory. It is true that no one can stand before the Lord's holiness. But this is also true. If we are living by repentance, and if we are truly seeking the Lord, no one can stand before the Lord's people. I'm not saying that your life is going to be easy. No, the Philistines, they made it all the way to Mizpah. I'm not saying that you're never going to be attacked. I'm not saying that hard things are never going to happen. But... Jesus has promised to build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isaiah 54 says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And so we have been given these incredible promises that, are, that belong to the people of God. God. And it's not because we can stand strong. We, listen, you want to talk about standing before the Lord. We can't even stand before our enemies, but here's the power. You see, that lamb that was sacrificed is pointing to a, a greater sacrifice, isn't it? And it's not really a question of can we stand before the Lord, because no one can. But here's the amazing thing, is that the Lord has come to stand among us. And he came to stand among us and identify with us as sinners. And he stood in the place of judgment. And he took the cross, the place where all of us deserve to die as a penalty for our sin. And he stood among us and he suffered for us and he paid the penalty for our sin. And he who graciously gave us his own own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see... If we are living our lives based on repentance, if we are living our lives by faith in Jesus Christ, then the truth is that no one can stand before us. Not because of the strength that's in us, no. Because of the strength that's in Him. Because of the power of the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because of the promises that God has given us to never leave us or forsake us. So then... In verse 12 it says then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer for he said till now the Lord has helped us. You see uh, see what Samuel was doing here he he named this place Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer was the name that was the place where they fought the battle where they initially lost to the Philistines. It was a name that was associated with shame, it was a name that was associated with defeat. And Samuel takes that name and reclaims it and says, No, this place, this place of victory, this place is going to be named Ebenezer. Ebenezer means rock of help. And notice what he says. Up and we're laying this rock down here. We're we're calling this name Ebenezer, our rock of help, because it says, till now the Lord has helped us. It means rock of help. And as we get ready to share. In our meal of remembrance, taking the bread and the cup today, we're going to remember this rock of remembrance, this this Ebenezer. And we're going to sing together this familiar old hymn that has this line that many of us have sung, but if we're honest, we probably haven't always understood what we're singing. Verse 2 of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help, I've come. That's one Samuel seven twelve. Till now, the Lord has helped us, and I help and I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. And the Rock of Remembrance, was, it was a place to orient your life. To say, you know what, this is what happened in the past, and God came through. And every time I come to this rock, I can be reminded that no matter what happened in my past, no matter what I'm facing in my present, no matter what's ahead of me in the future, I know that up until now, God has helped me. And our Ebenezer, our place that used to be a place of shame, that has now become a place of victory, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is a place where we can look at our lives and say, whatever was behind me, whatever I'm going through now, whatever fears I have in the future, I have this rock of remembrance, this Ebenezer, that Jesus loved me, Jesus died for me, Jesus paid for my sin. And so we're going to prepare our hearts right now to share in that meal of remembrance, as we remember our rock of remembrance, Christ and his body, and his blood. So let's bow our heads and pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the name that brings us the greatest victory, Lord, victory over sin and death. And, Lord, I pray right now for these loved ones who are gathered in your name, Lord, that by your Spirit you would comfort every heart, every soul that is here right now. Lord, whether it be wounds from past defeats, Lord, whether it be a present struggle or whether it be anxiety about the future, Lord, I pray that you would be their rock of help. I pray that every eye and every heart would have their eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and remember that he gave his life for us and that he took it up again and won that victory for us and so lord we pray that there would be a spirit of reverence and remembrance in this place for your glory in jesus name amen amen this has been an audio sermon from harvest bible chapel in brampton ontario for more information about our church or to contact us please visit harvestbrampton.ca